My name is Olympia Duhart, and I'm a professor at Nova Southeastern University's Shepherd Broad College of Law. This is LST's mini-series about women in the law. Throughout this series, we've examined the professional and personal difficulties women face in the legal profession. This week, we'll continue the conversation with a special look at challenges women face when they must navigate multiple identities. When a woman lawyer must check multiple boxes, whether based on gender, race, sexual orientation, disability, gender identity, or religion, there are additional obstacles she must overcome to succeed in the legal profession. The intersection between social identities offers us a chance to explore the multidimensional nature of bias. This week, we hear the compelling stories of two attorneys who not only face the challenge of being a woman in the legal profession, but also confront the complications triggered by an additional layer of diversity that impacts interpersonal and workplace dynamics. Our first story is about Shauna Jean Sorrell. She's a solo practitioner in Miami, Florida, where she's a litigator. Law, however, is Shauna's second career. Prior to law school, she was a physician. But that's not the only change Shauna has experienced. For 10 years, Shauna practiced law in Miami as a man. Today, she lives her life in a new role, making her way as a female attorney. This is her story. I started my transition in October of 2014. I kept it pretty much to myself. I didn't start living the role, my correct role, I should say, uh, as female until about a year later, recognizing that you could not go back and forth. I transitioned over that year physically, emotionally, and then in October of 2015, I made a, a bigger leap to pretty much living full-time. I did not go to court. That was the only time I kind of slipped back, and it was very uncomfortable. I was very unhappy doing it because I had to let the judges and opposing counsel and other attorneys know, and it was sort of a dilemma as to how do you, how do you make that that great leap forward. Shauna was undergoing a personal metamorphosis, but she had the extra stress of being a lawyer and protecting client interests in a world that's still learning to make sense of gender identity. The client piece adds a complex layer to the equation. I wasn't going to walk into court and say, hey, surprise. It's just not fair. It's not right. Shauna decided she needed to tell the judges before appearing before them. Of course, it's not normal for an attorney to want to just meet with a judge privately in their chambers. So it was always a question of why, what is this about? So she approached the judicial assistants, also known as JAs. So I told the JAs, and they arranged for a brief three- to five-minute appointment with every judge that I called for. And then the JAs would always attend the, the meetings to make sure that there was no mistake of impropriety. And I would explain to the judge, I, I, I'm going to start coming to court in a slightly different role. They always asked, you know, you need to be more specific. I had one judge who tried to push me into blurting it out. I said, you know, if you give me a moment, I'll, I'll get to it, but you're going to be sorry and apologize to me, and you're going to apologize for trying to rush me through it. So he kind of, he, he had a very limited amount of time, obviously, and it was supposed to be a brief meeting, and I eased into it. You're talking about going from what other people perceived as a very masculine, short-haired, older male practitioner, and now I'm coming in as a visibly happy, potentially slightly younger female practitioner. I took out my camera, showed some pictures of myself, of Shauna, and uh, <laughs> he looked at the pictures for a moment, and he looked at me, and he said, I appreciate 
you taking the time to meet with me. I'm sorry, you're right. I shouldn't have tried to rush you. Uh, he said, thank you for not coming to court. And he said, I have a really good poker face, but this would have definitely thrown me off. He was fine with it. My first day in court with him, he knew what to expect. He knew I was coming in. My name hadn't been changed yet. So he made a big deal out of asking me beforehand, how do I address you? He said, is, is just counselor good enough? And I said, that's perfect. And I walked into court and he sat down, kept a great poker face, didn't blink, but he, he did kind of nod and say, looking good. I said, thank you, sir. And we moved on to the hearing. What Shauna really wanted was to be treated like everyone else. And that's what she got. I was very excited. and I was excited for all the right reasons. I was not expecting any adversity. I already knew that they knew. I already knew that they were going to be supportive. But when I came into court and the bailiff came over and gave me a hug and said, you look great, I knew it was a good day. I knew it was easy. The hearing didn't start from the 10 minutes. And he kind of just kept repeating, wow, you look really good. And it's, you know, it's an ego boost for anybody, uh, for someone who's made a transition, a huge transition like this, a gender transition. It goes beyond ego. It goes to that point of somebody saying, it's okay. You look good. You look happy. Be yourself. And that's who I was. And I have to be honest, the, the hearing was very smooth. I was very comfortable in the role. I was very comfortable being myself. I was very comfortable with everything. I wasn't treated differently than I had been before. Of course, everything hasn't been easy for Shauna. One story in particular stands out to her. Not long after she officially changed her name, both legally and with the Florida Bar, an opposing counsel kept sending her emails addressed to her former name and her former gender. I've showed it to other lawyers and their actual comment was, you know, you should report this. There's nothing to report. It's not a bar violation. It's not an ethical violation. It's just a human violation. Until this point, things were going pretty well on the name front. But to ensure that nobody thought she was unauthorized to practice law, she did need to change her name with the state bar in addition to the legal name change. I called and the agent at the Florida Bar, when I talked to her, she was super excited to talk to me. She was equally excited to help me. I was going into court two days later and I said, Is it, do you think my name will be changed on the bar's website before that hearing? She said, I'll do it right now. I said, you told me you don't do it for two or three more days. She said, don't worry, I'll do it right now. Literally an hour later when we checked the Florida Bar website, my bar number is the same. Uh, the name's not. At this point in our conversation, Shauna was smiling. She was absolutely beaming. It's recognition of who I am. So personally, spiritually, emotionally, professionally, it's saying whatever you've done that makes you happy is okay with all of us. Keep doing it. We're good with it. Go ahead, do it. So to, to go on the bar's website and look and see my new name, it was exciting. This is not a universal experience for transgender people. Around the same time that the state of Florida granted Shauna's name change, a superior court in Georgia rejected a name change petition from a transgender man. The question presented is whether a female has a salutatory right to change her name to a traditionally and obviously male name. The court concludes that she does not have such right. A recent report by the Human Rights Campaign and the Trans People of Color Coalition documents the harassment, discrimination, and violence that transgender people face based solely on their gender identity. In 2016, at least 21 transgender people were murdered due to their gender identity. 70% of the transgender people across the country have reported being attacked, harassed, or denied access to a bathroom. Others silently suffer through harassment that infects every aspect of their personal and professional lives. I will admit that one of my hesitations toward transitioning was always my professional 
I need to make a living. This is what I do. So it was always, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? How can I show up in court and address? How can I face an appellate bench? How can I face a judge? How can I face other attorneys? Can I do this? Can I do this? And this was a dilemma for a while. Is this really the kind of anxiety or difficulty or complications I want to throw into my life at this point in time? For me, there was no question. There was no choice. I waited. I waited. I waited. I waited because I was a doctor. I waited because of family. I waited because I'm a lawyer. I waited because of my friends. And in hindsight, I don't know if this would have worked as smoothly any time in my past. But today, it's the perfect storm. Everything fell into place in an ideal situation. Fortunately for Shauna, she didn't have any problems with clients. She was always selective with them, focused on the client more than the case, provided, of course, it's a legitimate claim and within the scope of her practice. During her complicated transition, it was helpful to worry less about her clients' opinions and more about representing them to the best of her ability. First off, my clients are all comfortable with the world around us today. And I had one client who actually was upset with me because I showed up for a hearing in my former role. And she knows me very well. She's known about the transition. She said, why is Shauna not here? Why are you here? And I said, to be honest, to protect your interests, the judge doesn't know. Opposing counsel doesn't know. I don't want to distract from the, the important issues that I'm representing you on. And afterwards, she said, don't do that again. You got to let everybody know. And, and it's, I was just starting to let the judges know. And she was right. And I took that, that advice. And I went to, that's when I started contacting the judges. Because I knew that my name change was coming. I knew that I couldn't. I wasn't going to live as anybody but Shauna, but I've been very lucky as a transgendered woman. A lot of women in my position lose everything. They lose their job. They lose their friends. They lose their family. They lose their, their entire sense of self, and they have to rebuild it all from scratch. But her experiences with colleagues at the courthouse have still been awkward at times. On her first day in court in her new role, dressed to the nines in a dress with heels, Shauna ran into an attorney that knew her, but didn't recognize her. And then we stepped out and I called his name. He turned around, he looked at me and he said, I wasn't sure that was you. I said, why don't you say hello? He said, because I wasn't sure it was you. I said, so are you afraid to say hello because you didn't know me or because you did? And he just laughed. He said, you look great. Gave me a hug. And he went into his courtroom. I went into mine. I honestly, I think the, the only thing I get from people occasionally is shock because... They never, and everybody has said this with very rare exceptions, they never anticipated this from me. But now that they see me, they don't just get it, it fits exactly. The person I am now is the person I am, and I am happier now. And it's actually easier to practice. Practicing law now is easier. I actually enjoy it more now because I'm happier who I am which makes it easier to do my job. The judges have made it easy. The other lawyers have made it easy. The clerk has made it easy. No one has complicated my life here in Miami by you know, giving me crossed eyes in the middle of an oral argument. Shauna has some advice that's pretty universal. If you meet somebody who is transgendered, female to male, male to female, you have to understand or try to understand, please, that looking at them, whether it's staring, whether it's scowling, whether it's smiling, whatever you do, you don't know what's going to go on in their head. You don't know what they're going through, what they've given up, what they've lost. I've gained more doing this than I've lost, but that's not the rule. These girls and these, these men also, there's a lot of suffering in some of their lives. And if you can just take a minute out of your day to either not be nasty or even more importantly, to be truly human and acknowledge that this person has done something 
that is so complicated and so difficult. It's really an important thing. If you can just be human for a minute, it makes such a difference in a single day. You can't imagine having a judge say to me, you look good. That's enough to validate me. You know, I may not be the most successful lawyer. I may not win every time. I try as hard as I can. But when it came to this, this is about the most successful thing I've done in my life. During the second half of the show, we'll hear from another female attorney who must manage multiple social identities. She's a litigator at a large DC firm and is one of millions of Muslims in the United States. Even in a city as diverse as our nation's capital, Islamophobia affects her on a daily basis, especially in today's very charged climate. This week's episodes are sponsored by John Marshall Law School in Chicago. The school welcomes its new dean, Darby Dickerson, who will lead a diverse student body, faculty, staff, and alumni base. Founded in 1899, the school is known for practical legal training, innovation, and a wide array of graduate programs. My name is Fatima Merchant. I'm a senior associate at the Washington, D.C. office of Shepard Mullen Richter in Hampton. I grew up in Irving, Texas. As a child of immigrants, my parents are both of Indian origin. They immigrated to the U.S. in the late 1960s. My dad has an LLB from Pakistan. And he never practiced law, but I think he always wanted one of his children to practice law. And when I was, this is so cheesy, but when I was in the third grade, I participated in this mock trial where I was the plaintiff's lawyer for a little girl. And this was like a whole scenario where the little girl was a soccer player and she moved with her family to a school where there was no girls soccer team. She wanted to be on the boys soccer team. So I was her lawyer in that little mock trial with all of us third graders. (laughs) Fatima ended up in law school, but she went in a different direction with her practice. My practice focused on regulatory compliance counseling and also internal and government investigations. So helping companies comply with the regulations and then doing investigations if something goes wrong. She travels frequently to client trainings and witness interviews. The airplane environment remains a challenge for many Muslims in the United States. A couple months ago, I was traveling and I was nursing at the time and traveling and pumping sucks as it is. Um, And on top of that, I just thought to myself, great, I'm a Muslim woman in a hijab with a breast pump, which is a device with tubes that makes loud noises. And every time I went into an airplane bathroom, I'd announce to the flight attendants just to make extra sure that everybody was comfortable, that I'm going to go into the bathroom and I'm going to be in there for 20 minutes and you're going to hear the noises out of this machine and I'm going to come out with a bag full of liquids. Fatima chose to start wearing her hijab in high school in Texas. I wear a style of hijab that's called a rida, which is specific to my small Shia, predominantly Indian community. So it's this long skirt and this cape with a scarf incorporated into it. I started wearing it when I was 16. For me, really, it was a a combination of really me wanting to be connected to my community. So for me, it's very much about cultural identity and also a source of empowerment. My style of hijab is really different. I'm not wearing like a headscarf with like a Chanel suit, right? Like this is its own kind of outfit. 
And so the ones I wear, even though I know I'm never going to look like everyone else, I try to keep them to kind of work tones. But the ones that women wear to my mosque are really, really brightly colored, very festive, a lot of embroidery. Muslim women choose to wear a hijab for a variety of reasons. I think the tough thing for a lot of women who do choose to wear hijab is this broad brush of why we choose to wear it, what that means. Some very much wear it for religious observation, some for modesty, some for cultural affinity, cultural identity, political views. I mean, there's a whole complicated host of reasons why someone might choose to wear it. For me personally, it, it really helped me develop as a person and help keep me grounded to my community, my background. My parents worked really hard to make sure that they, in coming to America to make a better life for their family, still made sure that we understood our traditions, we understood our cultural background, and we honored and felt good about upholding those traditions. One of Fatima's experiences during law school highlights an ever-present push and pull over how she presents herself. I remember when I was in law school, we had mock appellate hearings, and our professor, in preparation for these oral arguments, you know, kind of told everyone that when you come for your argument, make sure that you're in a suit and that the women are dressed in professional attire, blah, blah, blah. So after class, I was like, maybe I should just go tell him that this is just what I wear. There had been a couple of months before that I had gone straight to class from Eid prayer. So I had this like super shiny, festive redan. And so when I went to him to tell him that, well, this is just what I wear. So this is what I'm going to wear to the oral arguments. He was like, yeah, as long as it's not that purple one. For me, like that was totally fine. And I understood where he was coming from. But it all goes back to that same idea of how are we going to, conform to this idea of what is considered professional? And how do I conform to that when it's so out of the norm? Her outward display of culture and religion has some obvious ramifications in terms of treatment from others. But what may not be so obvious is what's going through her mind as she takes on any given day. I think the most significant impact of wearing hijab, of being a Muslim woman, for me, might not necessarily be how people react to me, but how that plays into my choices of how I interact with the world. So for me, I'm like, I need to be the most lovable Muslim in the world and always smile and, and look non-threatening and always leave generous tips and don't be the angry brown girl. How she's treated has definitely changed since she was a child. So growing up, I, I don't think people necessarily associated me with Islam or thought of me as Muslim. And the first question that I remember getting about my ethnicity really was after the Gulf War in elementary school when kids started asking me if I was Iraqi. That was kind of the, f- the first time as a child where I really felt like I was different. And what really changed was after 9-11. I think after 9-11, for, for me and, and my family and my community, I mean, there was a period of time where Women who did choose to wear hijab um, were, were legitimately afraid of being in public. Like, there's an ugliness right now that is palpable. And the hostility is definitely 
different than even after 9-11. I feel a lot more anger directed at me and people who look like me that represent an Islamic identity than what I felt 15 years ago after 9-11. Right now for the American Muslim community, and especially those who are visibly identifiable as Muslim, for anyone who has a negative view of Islam, like there I am, this visual reminder of something that they dislike. So that in and of itself is going to affect how they interact with me. I think that having this in the back of my mind is something that I have to deal with in making sure that I still project confidence, I still project power and competence as a lawyer. Those small slights or small experiences can get to you, but at the end of the day, it takes a lot more energy to make sure that those things don't affect my confidence and how secure I feel in who I am as a woman, as a lawyer, as a Muslim, as a mom. So it's just, it's an extra expenditure of energy where for, for some, all they have to concentrate on is being a good lawyer. Fatima's internal struggle and external perception create a feedback loop. When people look at me, they're, they're not going to think to themselves, you know, that must be a senior associate at a big law firm. But for me, overcoming that initial perception is a little bit of a hurdle. And then once they get to know me and understand the type of work I do, then, then we're fine. But there's always that bag of assumptions that people have when they see a Muslim woman in a hijab. Big law specifically, and I think the legal profession generally, is such a relationship-driven industry. If you look at the current power structure, it's still dominated by white men. And it's unlikely that a white man in his 60s is going to look at me and think, you know what, you really remind me of myself when I was your age. I don't look like anyone's daughter. So it might not be explicit bias against me, but it will be a preference for someone who looks like them. And in the short term, that might not affect me as much. But over the course of someone's career, those small preferences are going to add up to whether a person makes partner or gets squeezed out of a firm. The partner I work with, who is one of my biggest mentors, is a six foot two self-proclaimed atheist. And I'm a petite Indian Muslim woman. And to be very honest, like it was hard, it's work to forge those connections and to forge a relationship. And people don't want to do that work on top of all their work. But if they don't put in that work, things are never going to change. If I were only looking toward Muslim lawyers as mentors, I would have no mentors. So what can organizations do to help diverse attorneys feel more included? The first step is for a firm to understand, like admit, you know, that you have a problem. And I think there's a lot of firm leadership and management can do to help encourage partners and people in, in senior positions to mentor young diverse associates. I talk with partners about this all the time because they come from, a lot of them come from a, an era where even if they're like well-meaning, it's an era where you can't talk about race and you can't talk about religion. And that has to change because the only way you're actually going to build closeness and 
build trust is if you talk about the things that are important to people. And this is very important to young, diverse lawyers. So if you stay away from those topics, those relationships will never be built. Fatima looks to recent societal progress for a glimmer of hope, a path for a more accepting country for Muslims. I might be the only Muslim a lot of people know, probably the only Muslim woman in a hijab they know. Their frame of reference for Islam is me, like that's it. If we're really talking about how do we understand each other and how do we move past the dangerous racist rhetoric, it's because you work with people that are not like you. You might have a negative view of Islam, but if there's a person, I'm right there in front of you and it's a person, it's harder for you to make judgments about groups of people if you know someone. Right? There's all those statistics about if a person knew someone from the LGBTQ community, they were like twice as likely to support gay marriage. Because if it's a, a person in your face that you know and care about, that's going to change how you think about that ethnicity, that race, that gender. But while society progresses, Fatima still has a job to do. She still wants to make a living, but other people's implicit biases often make that more difficult. There are people all along the political spectrum who may view hijab as a form of oppression and may think that it's not truly a choice. That's where the issue lies. If a person wants to respect other people's beliefs but does not truly think that this is a woman's choice, it is going to affect how they view that person's abilities, that person's intellect, that person's power, that person's ability to make decisions and exercise judgment. All of those things could be affected by this perception that she is succumbing to patriarchal pressure. Fatima says it's exhausting at times, but also a great opportunity. I was talking with my husband the other day, and I talked to him about how, you know, people, when they look at me, they don't think that I'm, I'm a big law lawyer. And he was like, yeah, honey, but once they meet you, they'll never forget you. And I, I get that, right? I get that f- for me, you know, assuming I'm good at my job, which I am, it can be an opportunity to present something that is of value. Like all sorts of attorneys in all sorts of ways, she brings value to the firm beyond consistent, high-quality work. A lot of people think of diversity as this values proposition, right? Does embracing diversity, does this comport with who we are? But if you really think about it, diversity is not just a values proposition, it's a value proposition. The fabric of our country is changing, and I think companies realize that their consumers are changing. Whether it's consumers of products or services, U.S. demographics are changing. And with globalization, companies in the United States continue to look outside the country for new consumers. With my practice area, more and more companies understand and forward-looking companies understand that if you want to be successful, you're going to have to concentrate on the 95% of the world that isn't the United States, professional counselors that understand other cultures is a benefit and not a penalty. But at the same time, it goes back to this idea of what you think of when you think of a successful partner at a big law firm or associate at a big law firm. 
Despite the challenges, Fatima still wants to make partner at her firm. Part of it, to be frank, is so that I can be a Muslim woman partner in a hijab, even though that's not how I want my professional identity to be defined. I want to be a skilled and thoughtful and creative practitioner who happens to be Muslim and happens to be a woman and happens to be wearing hijab and happens to be a mom. But at the same time, I think being a partner and part of the leadership of this firm is not only a powerful statement to the firm, but to the broader legal community and to the broader world about the value of American Muslim women in the professional sphere. Thanks for tuning in. Stick around and listen to the roundtable discussion we held at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago about the privileges and challenges of multiple identities. I'm Olympia Duhart. This episode was produced by Cal McEntee, music by Brad Kemp. Thank you to all of our guests and to Kimber Russell, Marissa Olson, Ashley Milne-Tite, Karen Ulrich-Stacy, and Susan Poser for your help. We also want to thank Diversity Lab and Debbie Merritt for a generous donation very early in the project. Next week, we look at some solutions to the problems identified during our mini-series. Women in the Law is a production of Law School Transparency. To learn more about LST, visit lawschooltransparency.com. To learn more about this mini-series, visit lstradio.com women.